Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Sean Kane. I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm Richard Lee. All of us have had those moments in reading, when a book is so shocking that we have had to put it down, or even hide it, to help get it out of our heads. Now, you think we might be made of sterner stuff considering the amount we read, but even we have limits. I guess it surprised me that my reaction was so strong that sometimes I had to put the book down and be like, oof, this world is just so dark, I need to, I need to come out of it for a bit. And but I'm someone who reads so much, I don't, I don't know, gory killers and serial murders and all of this kind of thing. That was our books reporter, Alison Flood, who conquered her own fears to speak to Alice Clark Platts, author of The Flower Girls, which even hardened thriller reader Alison struggled to finish. But first, Claire, we just spoke to you about being in Calcutta last week, and since then you've been among the literati in Cartagena in Colombia. Tell us about the festival there. Yeah, it's a four-day festival, an outpost of our own Hay Festival, Mm -hmm. um, and it's in its 14th year. Uh, It's a really buzzy mix of local and international speakers. And ironically, considering that we quite often see them both in the UK, the two headliners, both huge stars, were Zadie Smith and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Now, Zadie talked fascinatingly about identity politics and the straitjacket that social media searchability places on our ever-evolving identities. Here she is on political correctness. If somebody says to me, you know, uh, a black girl would never say that, I'm like, really? How can you possibly know? Have you asked all the black girls? Is Is there a mass agreement about what we say and what we don't say and how we say it? Obviously, in fiction, there's always the risk of likelihood. That, that's the risk of fiction. And, and certainly, um, with white teeth, there's all kinds of mistakes, I'm sure, cultural mistakes. And, but, but I had a choice. I can either write novels about middle-aged, mixed-race girl from Wilsdon forever, just her and nobody else, or I, I can take a chance. The chance of wrongness, to me, is not... Um, Deadly. I'm, it's not deadly. It's okay. If I, if I make a mistake here or there, it's okay. And the question of, of the mistake is interesting. Like, it's assuming, for instance, like when I, I've written a lot of characters of faith, Muslims, some Jewish people, Catholics, all kinds of different faiths, to say that you would make an error with a character is to suggest, I think as sometimes young writers think, that if you're writing, a, for instance, a Muslim character, that every young Muslim walks around with the whole of the Quran in their head, for example. This is not the way people are. We're, we're so various that, that this uh, policing of correctness, it would be hard to see philosophically how that could be true. You could say, this is not clo- I'm this person and it's not like me. But there's, there's a lot of people in the world. And that kind of freedom and, and risk in fiction is necessary. And and also, there have been cases, I think, of something like Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina. Women, for generations, have felt incredibly close to these two women, fake pretend women. Fake pretend women invented by men. <laughs> Literally, 400-page drag performances. 
but they mean something to me. It makes people feel uncomfortable because that's not what we do in life. We don't, we don't do it in our political lives. We don't do it in our social lives. But this is not your real life. This is the place of fiction. It's uncomfortable. It's strange. It's perverse. It doesn't make any sense that a Frenchman writes inside the body of a woman so convincingly that women around the world say, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. That's crazy, but it's, but it's what happens, what's possible in fiction. So that, that's it. There's, it's, I wouldn't, there's no defense for it. It's irresponsible. Fiction is fundamentally irresponsible. But the biggest star of all was Chimamanda, who did two sessions. The first was in an elite city centre conference hall, which seats 2,000 people, and where touts were flogging already costly tickets at twice their face value. Mm. But the really precious, wonderful one was the following day when she travelled to the impoverished Nelson Mandela barrier to explain her unique brand of performative femininity, if you will, to all comers on a makeshift stage. She was flanked by the Minister of Culture and 20 Colombian women writers of African heritage. There was a little bit of heckling, but it was sort of managed. <laughs> <Don't imagine. laughs> women had been uh, flown in from around the country. And she talked to them about topics ranging from the importance of sex education and tackling institutional racism to the beauty of African hair. Did I mention that it was exciting? I'm sitting in a makeshift marquee in the barrio Nelson Mandela, which is one of the poorest and furthest um, barrios of Cartagena. Um, complete contrast to the beautiful, the very picturesque streets of the old town where the most of the Hay Festival takes place. And we're here waiting for probably the biggest star of the whole festival, who is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. It's hard to explain just what a big star she is in this country. There are young women here all beautifully done up and families and it's just there's a, a sense of excitement that I haven't seen anywhere else in this festival and possibly anywhere else in many other festivals. As you can probably hear from the drums there's a real festival carnival almost atmosphere here. Everybody's very very hot and there are umbrellas for the people who can't fit underneath. A bit of impatience starting now. I can just see what appears as everybody's starting to dance off to the right. There are sort of dances with sort of what look like sort of spears with ribbons on them. So I imagine that she's just embarking from her taxi. Chimamanda's got the giggles. You are a rock star. She certainly is. Buenos dias. <laughs> ¿Cómo están? Um, me alegra estar en la Cartagena Negra. So that gives a sense of the vibrancy of her barrier appearance. And here she is on writing your own truth. Never think that you have to apologize. I think that as black women in the world, often there is a, the pressure to, to not be our full selves, right? Because, the, you know, you don't want to be... Sometimes you're in situations where you think, if I'm too black, I'm going to make them uncomfortable. So you start to hide parts of yourself and you start to change yourself because you want to fit in. And what I've learned in my own um, experience is that 
when I'm most fully myself is actually when things end up sort of going well, if that makes sense. There are people in the publishing industry who will never get your stories. That's just a fact. But there's always someone who will. That's been my experience. I think that any story that's... The story has to be written well, of course. <laughs> but I think that any story can be universal. And so this idea somehow that one has to be mainstream, and often mainstream means not being black or not being too black, I, I would say don't do it. Don't apologize. I would say, I would say be you. Because there's a lot, actually, I think, in the untold stories of black women's experiences that will make for great literature and that has not been done. It hasn't been done. And so I see that as an opportunity, right, to, to tell the stories of black women's experiences in a way that will speak to everyone. And it can be done. When I was writing Americana, which is a novel that's sort of very blunt about race and hair and blackness, I remember thinking nobody's going to read this book. They're going to hate it because it's too obvious. You know, I'm not being um, nuanced about race. You know, I'm calling black, black, right? I'm not saying black is something in the wind, right? I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying this is what it is. So I thought nobody would like the book. And I was so surprised. I'm still so surprised that people actually are reading this book. And when I, when I was writing it, I said to myself, okay, nobody will buy it, but I'm still getting royalty checks from my other books, so at least I can eat until I write the next book that people will buy. <laughs> so I guess the point of this story is simply to say, um, is to say, tell your truth. I think it's a shame that we have a few more obstacles than other people because we're black women. But, but that's not a reason to stop, right? I mean, th there's still opportunity. I think that the untold stories of black women's experiences is not a bad thing. It's an opportunity. Doesn't she have a fabulous voice? Do you get to see a slightly different side to these people who are familiar from appearances in the UK? Yeah, I think, I mean, there was a, definitely the two talks that Chimamanda gave were very different. The first was very literary. And in the second, you just felt that she was talking truths that needed to be said to a population that needed to hear them. And they were, it was much more to do with the politics of personal identity and the way that the, you know, the literary and the personal and the political and the institutional all coalesce. And, you know, you just, you could feel these, the 20 women writers, but also, you know, just local people who come around and were hanging around, just absolutely gulping down this wisdom that was coming off her and she is she's like a queen mm. you know and, and also her style I talked about her performative femininity she talked a lot about it and in the 2000 seater she was like a sort of Cleopatra <laughs> but then when she when she was talking in the barrier she was wearing a, a black t-shirt and these rather wonderful gaucho pants from Nigeria mm. she absolutely carries this stature and it's absolutely fascinating for me the way that her physical representation of herself is political in this context in a way that I don't think it quite is in the UK mm. I, I saw photos of her appearance in the barrio and it's just amazing like it, it, how crowded it was and there was sort of people there's a great shot from the stage sort of from behind Jim Amanda and you could see sort of people all crammed in and like looking over each other's shoulders and stuff and then there were photos of her hugging people afterwards and it, was, it just it did have a sort of political like going out and meeting the people yeah. meeting your constituencies exactly <laughs> and, and, you know one thing we don't think about I mean possibly a lot of people think of Colombia as a place where Latinos a country of Latinos but actually it is a Caribbean country with a huge population of African origin mm -hmm. And they feel disadvantaged in much the same way as as Afro-Caribbean people in here feel disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there they all were. There was something very prophetic about her. Mm. Do you think she enjoys that kind of connection? 
yeah she absolutely she was she loved it oh she was she was really happy and at home and or at least she seemed to be very happy and at home but you know she's she's somebody who's developed this enormous public stature and she's sort of married her essayistic political writing and her fictional writing with a sort of aplomb and an ease that I don't think in a funny sort of way I don't think Zadie has I think that Zadie's brilliant at both but I think there's a she's slightly prickly has a slightly prickly relationship to both whereas Mm. Chimamanda doesn't so I suppose with both of them both of them were at their talks talking about like telling your truth yeah, so in, I, mean, I have this phrase that I use, which is the, the vagabond imagination, which actually was coined back in the 18th century to discuss how the revolutions around Europe and in the Americas could control the individual. But it went on to be used in modernist discourse, in which it was described as the smooth, unbounded space of nomadism, which the institutions of power are always trying to bring under control. And I think in, in both cases of Zadie and Chimamanda, they're talking about the right to assert your own truth is a political thing as mm-hmm. well as a personal thing. We'll be looking at a very different manifestation of what Claire calls the vagabond imagination after this. I'm Lee Glendening, and in this month's We Need to Talk About podcast, our panel respond to Guardian supporter questions on education. How can countries around the world take the politics out of their education systems? How can we grow and keep our teachers and give them greater ownership of their profession? And with the creative arts being sidelined in the curriculum, how can we better support well-being in schools? That's We Need to Talk About Education. To have a listen, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. I'm very happy to say that we're all now being joined by Alison Flood, our books reporter. You are the very reason for this week's podcast with Alice Clark Platts talking about her latest novel, The Flower Girls. And of course, we are going to be talking about Alice's books and other books that shocked us for things like sexual violence, abuse and murder. So if you do not feel like joining us, that's fine. We get it. But do have a scroll back to our many other wonderful interviews in the books podcast feed. <laughs> we're not always like this. Um, so Alison, why did you want to talk with Alice? Well, I read tons of thrillers. I'm I'm hardened to murder and terrible things happening in the books <laughs> that I read. But I, I found myself particularly disturbed by The Flower Girls in a way that intrigued me. So it's about... It opens as two little girls lure a toddler away. We don't find out what happens to her, but it's pretty clear that she's killed. Then skips to 19 years later, where one of the girls is in prison Mm -hmm. and her little sister has been given a new identity. And it's on this girl's 25th birthday. She's staying in a hotel and another child disappears. And as a result of this, her real identity as one of these notorious flower girls or killers comes out and the book kind of circles between the disappearance in the present day of the toddler and the murder of the toddler 19 years earlier and I just found the the topic so hard to read about that that even though it's not gratuitous violence at all she writes well it's a good mystery just having to kept having to put it down and sort of think god this is awful. <laughs> is that because, do you think it's because you've got a toddler that, that it's so particularly shocking to you? Well, maybe, but it seems simplistic in a way. I, I hate to sort of put it down to, to being a mother so I can understand what it is 
for a child to to be killed. But maybe that's it. I mean, I couldn't read Lullaby either. Mm. I got to the opening. <laughs> the opening Leila Slimani. Yeah, which opens with how does it open? The like, baby then? is dead. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. maybe maybe it's that. Just two, I've got my own two year old, so I don't like to think about the the beating to death of a two year old. But I think a lot of people would feel the same way. It's not not a pleasant topic. So I was keen to talk to Alice, who's a former human rights lawyer who writes really well about how other people had reacted to the book if other people had found it hard to get through. And I, I need to add that I did get to the end and it is a good book. But mm. <laughs> I did have to place it aside on a few occasions and read something else to kind of cleanse my palate. <laughs> yes, I, I've had lots of reaction where, you know, I think the subject matter of children being involved in such a brutal crime is obviously hugely upsetting, not only in terms of the victim being so young, but the fact that the crime was, was done by children. Mm, I think it's that, isn't it? It's that the children doing the crime. Yeah, and I think, you know, as a society, we obviously view children as, as ultimately innocent and the idea that they, they could be lurking underneath their sort of childlike facade is this sort of more mature and horrible instinct I think is hugely upsetting for us so mm. yeah when people have been reading it they have expressed that and I think what I've tried to do when I was writing it is really steer clear of, of sort of sensationalizing any kind of violence or any kind of like gory detail in terms of the actual crime mm. But just to to give you enough information so that you know what happened, but really to concentrate on the psychological aspects of what was happening at that time and what happens nearly 20 years later when we meet the characters again. Mm. No, that's definitely true that you don't sensationalise things. There's no kind of gory details of what happened. Which is why I guess it surprised me that my reaction was so strong that sometimes I had to put the book down and be like, oof, this world is just so dark. I need to, I need yeah. to come out of it for a bit. And this, I'm someone who reads so so much, I don't, I don't know, gory killers and serial murders and all of this kind of thing. But this, it was just, the, I guess, the toddler at the heart of it who dies um, and then examining the psyches of these these girls was was hard place to go well i think i mean the, the, always for me and whether it be book or film it, it's always far more terrifying if you don't see the actual scary thing because i think your mind makes it far worse than it mm. than you would actually read or, or see on a you know on a horror film or something like that so i'm, I'm pleased that it had that reaction i'm sorry that <laughs> <laughs> it was upsetting but um i think i you know i deliberately wanted to kind of create a re- reaction in in the reader's where they see that you know this is shocking and it is awful but it does happen and in fact it's a lot more common than people probably realize this idea of children committing crimes did you look into that then as part of research for the book absolutely yes i did a lot of research i read a lot around the subject i read a lot i mean it was a cheery time i read a lot of books about children who've committed violent crimes in this country in america in europe so yeah i mean i it's not completely out of the blue you know this does happen and Mm. I think it's a really fascinating subject in terms of looking at cognitive psychology and looking at um, the development of the brain and also this idea of sort of nature versus nurture and how that plays into these kind of crimes. Mm. And did you feel like it was a subject that hadn't really been explored enough in fiction that it was something that that was kind of ripe for exploration? Yeah I suppose I mean I think Certainly in terms of the media's portrayal of these kind of crimes, it can be pretty sensational. And I think people weirdly like reading about these kind of crimes. I think people like reading crime in general, I think, because they are quite relieved that they don't have those impulses themselves. It's sort of, it's like 
reading about it without having to do it, you mm-hmm. know, and being kind of relieved that you're not evil or you're not this person that's that's going to commit your, these your toddler hasn't been murdered <laughs> yeah or that you know i mean i yes exactly you know when my children first started at nursery and one of them got bitten by another child and i remember being so relieved that she was the one that had been bitten <laughs> rather than the biter you know so yeah i think i wanted to explore perhaps an area where people are afraid to talk about it because they 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 do find it upsetting and, and are worried about kind of normalising perhaps something. And I thought it was a really interesting way of kind of looking into the psychology. And, and as a writer, you know, ultimately you're always wanting to get into the psychology of characters. And this just was just rich pickings. It makes me think of an interview I did with another author, this guy called Gabriel Talent, who wrote My oh, yes. Absolute Darling. Yes. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. I was asking him about how he could write about this sexual abuse of a child, how he could go into such dark places. And he, he said, what's the alternative? The alternative is silence, because exploitation is happening whether or not I write it. And then, then he talked about how if he didn't write it, we're telling these people that their story isn't tellable. We're making them into pariahs. Yeah, or monsters, um, yeah. No, I agree. And in fact, that book I had on my shelves for a long time because I couldn't bring myself to read it because I knew what the subject was. Mm. And then, of course, I read it and I thought it was brilliant. And I thought he dealt with it so well with that, mm-hmm. that exactly that kind of taboo subject and, and this idea that a child could love an abuser yeah Mm. I mean absolutely and I I think if we accept that children do commit crimes and I think we need to look at why that's happening and if they do then what what do we do with them what do we Mm -hmm. do with that like do we say that we're gonna lock them up forever or do we think about rehabilitation how do we deal with the relatives of the victim how you know what's the best way of kind of balancing all those different aspects Mm -hmm. and so yeah that was I just thought it was something that needed exploring and talking about yeah you mentioned the murder of James Bulger in the book because your sisters Laurel and Rosie they're known as like the notorious flower girls and the media attention on them is huge I know that James Bulger's family has recently been um, critical of the making of a short film about about the case that They've been criticising it for humanising Venables and Thompson, I guess, for trying to make them sympathetic. And I I wondered how you felt about treading on that ground, on that kind of painful ground. Yeah, I mean, of course it's painful ground. And I remember it very well. I think I was 17 in 1993 when that murder happened and I was hugely upset along with everybody else. I mean, The Flower Girls is different in that it's a fictional story. It's not based on Mm. the Bulger killing and whilst I did read books about that murder, but I've also researched many other stories. So I think what I was interested in, the documentary, I think, is different in, in the sense that that is a it's purely talking about that circumstance. Mm. And it's a it's factual. It's real to life. It, mm. It's a reality. And The Flower Girls is fiction. And. I do deal with the media treatment of the so-called flower girls. I mean, one of the things that I that not many people have picked up, actually, in the book is that the, the girls are called Primrose and Laurel, and so the press decide to call them the flower girls, but Laurel isn't actually a flower. Um, Laurel's a tree. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, But they don't care. You know, they just want mm. to have this kind of title of, you know, so that it's a, it's an easy, quick way of kind of, getting it into the public's imagination. Mm -hmm. There was a really interesting case that I read about that happened in Norway, in fact, the year after the Bulger murder, where two six-year-olds beat to death a five-year-old child in a playground and stripped off her clothes and left her 
for dead in the snow and, oh and she God. died. The difference in Norway was that the press were never given either the names of the perpetrators or of the victim. Mm. So essentially they couldn't really report on it because as soon as they'd said this murder happened, then they had nowhere else to go because nobody knew where it had happened. They didn't know who the people were. So the following years and the way that the boys, as it was, that, that murdered this little girl, the way that they were dealt with just happened very privately. You know, they were punished. There was a punishment given to them, but it was never it was never up to the public to kind of get involved in that. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, the victim's family were involved in it as, you know, they had to grieve and kind of process what had happened. Mm. But it's just interesting to compare how different societies deal with it. I'm not saying that one's right and one's wrong, but it's just it's an interesting way of, of looking at how we as human beings kind of deal with this Mm. subject i think it's a really interesting strand of the book the kind of discovery of of hazel's real identity and how it plays out i really like the bit where the detective comes to the realization of who she is she's a really good character the detective i think the the fact that she doesn't want to kind of rise up the ranks of police but it's like the thrill of the chase is what she's yeah after yeah yeah. i I like hillier a lot yeah she's she's just a good copper yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) you wrote a couple of police procedurals before this didn't you why the the change? What was there something in particular that prompted it? Just really wanting to kind of. I'd written two books set in Durham, which was fantastic, and the police force up there, and um, sort of set was, was a great place, kind of within the university. But then I just wanted perhaps to step away from the police procedure, like you mm-hmm. have to do this and then that and then this and then that, and and really kind of get more into the psychology of the actual criminals themselves, mm-hmm. and um, and sort of explore that. Which if you're in the head of a police person for the entire novel Mm -hmm. it's hard to kind of delve into that so much so yeah yeah, that was what prompted the change really yeah and was there something in particular that sent you down the pathway of this story well I mean I'd had just been thinking about it for a long time I mean as I say I have read a lot about these subjects and as a writer you're always kind of reading things and thinking about new ideas for books and and yeah I mean I I just was was fascinated with like this idea of also I'm a lawyer by trade and this whole idea of the the, you know not being culpable until you're 10 years old Mm. always had fascinated me as a lawyer and I thought well to put that in a situation in a family where you've got siblings who one escapes any kind of justice and the other one doesn't Mm -hmm. how does that affect the family you know how do you go on from that and that's again another theme of the novel you dealt with some pretty dark cases as a lawyer too right yeah I mean I wasn't a criminal lawyer I was sort of government human rights lawyer but I did go out to work on the tribunal that was prosecuting the genocide perpetrators in Rwanda so yes we had some pretty harrowing tales then of of things that happened but again you know with that it was always very interesting in terms of the idea of forgiveness and how that country is learning to rebuild itself after you know one half attacked the other half and again how do you move on from that you know do you build a wall and say well you can be on one side and we'll be on the other or do you try and bring communities back together again and 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 heal those wounds so yeah I think all of it feeds into the, the ideas that I'm interested in. You've got kids yourself, right? I do. In fact, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> <Disturbing. I know. laughs> How did those strands kind of sit together as you were writing this this very dark novel about a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old? <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, you just have to... It's nothing to do with my children. And I mean, I, I think... <laughs> Obviously. <that>, yeah. <laughs> I just think I can um, 
can observe how children are right i'm aware as a as a parent of how much you cherish your children and how much you want to protect them and Mm. um, look after them so all of that comes into the writing but you know as a writer when you go into these dark places you separate them from anything to do with yourself I think Mm -hmm. you have to otherwise you'd go slightly insane yeah just to be clear I mean I think that the flower girls is a really excellent book I think that it's really well done with the double crossing and the different perspectives and the different timelines so I found it really hard to put down I think it's a really excellent thriller whereas there are some books that I've started reading and I have actually had to to set them aside because they they went too far into two dark places I couldn't finish um American Psycho that was right. that was yeah, too yeah, much yeah. for me yeah um I couldn't finish a, a horror novel called The Unblemished which is about people being eaten and I oh, had no. to in fact leave it behind on a bus because <laughs> I didn't want it to come back to my house for me. some <laughs> poor other person to find yeah. have you got any books that you that you found have just gone too far into two dark places I remember once reading an Eleanor Ferranti novel not the famous My Brilliant Friend series um and now I can't remember the name of it but it's it's one where a mother has two children and the husband leaves her and she's on her own looking after these two children in her flat and she's slowly going mad and then the little boy gets a really bad temperature and he you can you know that he's getting sicker and sicker and she's not doing it she keeps forgetting about him and forgetting about the children forgetting to feed them and Mm. kind of just wandering out and kind of getting lost and you know that the children are stuck back in the flat and I was on holiday at the time and I was getting more and more upset by this story that in the end yeah I'd like midway through I was like do you know what I'm on holiday I'm just gonna read Jackie Collins (laughs) 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 I I don't need this horribleness in my holiday yeah oh I'm gonna have to track it down it sounds great (laughs) (laughs) be warned be warned indeed so the flower girls really bothered Alison, but it actually started a good conversation in the office about the books that really either we couldn't finish or really bothered us, really unsettled us. And it, when when it was first brought up, actually, my ultimate one and is the one book I couldn't finish. And actually, it was taken off of me because my reaction was so strong, <laughs> was um, American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. So it's, uh, it was always this very loaded book for me. But then I sort of, as part of my like literary education, I decided I was going to read it and found after reading this, I definitely have a real problem with sexual violence, particularly in books. And I think it's because of just the nature of reading. You have to create things in your own head. And inevitably, I put myself in the position of whoever is being violated and it's so frightening to me that I just I can't deal with it and there is a scene in the book I'm not going to describe it in detail but it involves two sex workers that Patrick Bateman tortures while he's having sex with them and it is the most disgusting thing and I I was reading it and I actually had to put it down at that point just because there was a description of something that he did to them that I just couldn't deal with and then uh, that afternoon my partner touched me on the shoulder or something and I actually shrunk away from him and he knew because I'd I'd spent the whole day reading this book and then had just been a bit grumpy all afternoon and then I actually shrunk away with him and it was just involuntary and he was just like okay you need to stop reading this book because it's making you frightened of men it felt so evil to me I just didn't want to read it and I've actually read other Brett Easton Ellis books and he's just he's a very strange writer in that I think he early in his career he did have some genuine social commentary to say and now it just feels like really empty violence and particularly in imperial bedrooms which was one of his later books one of his more recent books there's there's sexual torture in that that i'm just like you don't you this didn't need to be there and he puts it in i had the similar reaction to william burroughs's naked lunch uh, which yes. is 60 this year if you can believe really? it and there's particularly the scene in hassan's rumpus room anybody who's read it will know the scene in hassan's rumpus room which involves a rape of a, of a young boy and and gore vidal interestingly who who defended 
defended it in the big trial that, that en- ended up with it getting off charges of obscenity, said, oh, it's like Hieronymus Bosch. It's like he's painting a vision of hell like, mm. like Hieronymus Bosch. Um, and I thought about that. And I, the difference between fiction that does that and a painting that does that. Mm. And I just personally, I can intellectually, I can accept what Vidal was saying. But personally, I thought it was evil. And I have to confess, I actually destroyed the book. Really? I was very How young did you do at it? the time. I, I put it in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing very ceremonial about that. I've never destroyed another book. And I'm very against the destruction of books. You're <laughs> a book burner. I didn't want anybody else to read what I'd read. I just yeah. I felt absolutely violated by it. But mm. is it because you detected the similar kind of emptiness there? Or is it just the subject matter in itself? I just think the idea of men getting off on torture of mm. vulnerable people, whether it's women or boys, is so offensive to me. And so it's sort of like the ultimate horror, which I think is what's coming up yeah. a, a, well, in that's a lot in of, Imperial of bedrooms. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is in Imperial Bedrooms, which is only a few years ago. He, um, the main character purchases two children, a boy and a girl, and then he just plays with them. And it is the most just... Brett Easton Ellis isn't making a point there. He's just trying to shock us now. And actually, there was a there was I was reading an interesting review, the New York Times's review, and the the reviewer said, "We, the modern audience for novels like this, have gotten over being shocked. There is nothing left." And I actually don't think that's true. I think that they, these books are shocking just because I think you can sense the author's intent behind them. And if there is nothing but the intent to shock, then it just feels dirty to almost be entertaining their wish to Plus, just. We shock can't you. collectively arrive at a inability to be shocked no. as an audience. No, no, no. exactly. And, and it's interesting, when you put the call out on Twitter from Guardian Books, people were uh, uh, were naming things like Wuthering Heights and Villette and, and <laughs> yeah. Sarah Waters' The Little Stranger as among their absolutely disturbing books. And I wouldn't consider uh, any of them to be disturbing. But there's no, but I can't say that they aren't disturbing for no. those people who experience them as that. Well, there was a really interesting range of books that were mentioned. So um, I put it out on Twitter just asking, uh, you know, what were the books that have unsettled you, that have haunted you? And and books like The Wasp Factory by uh, Ian Banks, which obviously uh, has a reputation for being quite uh, shocking. Something Happened by Joseph Heller, the Catch-22 sequel, which lots of people have mentioned. Sharp Objects by Gillian Flynn, which is obviously she she would come up for things like Gone Girl as well. The Collector by John Fowles, oh, yeah, that's which is uber totally creepy. one of my... And it's the funny thing, though, is that it's, it, it is a genuinely unsettling book all throughout, but I think the real gut punch is on the final line. So actually... When you read it, it's not really the case that you won't finish it. You will finish it and then go, oh, God, I really wish I hadn't read that. Did, it's did, brilliant, though. Did anyone mention Guts, the, the Chuck Palahniuk? Oh, I was no. going to mention that. Involving a small boy in a swimming pool. Yes. Um, the one that oh. had people fainting in the eyes. Yeah, more when, cannot when be said it. about it, I, I think, on this podcast. I heard about that um, when you used to do readings and people used to walk out. Yeah, I, I, just, I just reread it, actually, for this podcast, <sighs> and it, it remains as shocking now <laughs> really? as it was then. And there is always the question of gratuitousness. Yes. And I think that Chuck Palahniuk is, he's just, tipped over into gratuitousness or he Mm. did quite a long time ago and I just don't you can take quite a lot if you feel it's absolutely driven and genuine and necessary Mm, I didn't I didn't faint at reading it but I I did feel genuinely sickened when I put (laughs) it down I did get to the end of that one it's also about context as well because I mean you say the William Burroughs the the novel is 60 years old now but it seemed sort of urgent and necessary back then to be breaking barriers down doing things that were shocking just for the point of them being shocking having done that 
there's not the same sort of need. Mm. Yeah, but there's a different sort of shock barrier now, isn't there? And our colleague, Rhiannon Lucy Coslett, wrote a very interesting piece in The Guardian this week about how many women were turning to gross-out sex, basically. Mm. And she cited Sally Rooney's Normal People, in which uh, Marianne asks Connell to, Connell to, to, punch, to her. punch her. But she also cited Mary Gateskill, who, who's, um, I remember from, I'd forgotten completely about mm. Bad Behaviour, her 1988 short story collection. And when she was asked about it, Mary Gateskill said love can be a deep feeling, so it becomes connected to other deep feelings, especially but not only to sexual feelings. Mm. And, and, I, and it has become wired into this, the Me Too movement, hasn't it? This sense of trying to express just how degraded women feel and yeah. how that can express itself through deviant sexual reactions. Well, that's, it's funny that this, this month alone, um, having read Kristen Rupenian's You Know You Want This collection and having read Adele by Leila Stamani in the same month, we've got two books where women are to be kicked during sex. And I was not expecting it in either of them. I left a book behind on a bus once because I was so grossed out. Really? <laughs> what book was it? It was a horror novel. It was called The Unblemished. There was just too much kind of human flesh eating, even uh, for my days. <laughs> I ended up shoving it down between the seat and leaving it there. So, so often the, the analysis of this is that it, it's, it's an expression the, in the personal of the political. And, and I've also been recently watching the films of amazing Italian director called Lina Wurzmuller, which is full of the most terrible sexual violence. And mm. it's, a, it's about class the violations of class as they're played out on the, in the personal arena. But I've also been reading for a podcast which will come up in another couple of weeks, um, a, a book by a, neuro, a clinical neuropsychologist, A.K. Benjamin, it's called Let Us Not Be Mad. And he has this really fascinating line, at high levels of arousal in those with high thresholds, there can be a sudden counterintuitive reversal of charge so that pain is experienced as pleasure. So you, like, is it possible that we're all getting pleasure somehow from really horrible, gross, violent... Well, what I would take culture? from it is, is that, that, that it's like the, the sort of frying of synapses, so all these impulses get confused. Because when Marianne asks Connell to beat her, she's, she's actually not... She's not thinking in terms of it hurting her. She's thinking in terms of a weird sort of connection she's between made a pleasure connection. and pain. Yeah. She's made a connection, which, which Connell, to his credit, doesn't accept. And no, so says he no. refuses to do it. But I, I thought that was really fascinating, the way that it, it actually plays through into the neurology of pain and pleasure. Note the caveat there that um, it's with those with high thresholds. So it's, <laughs> it's not, I don't think he's suggesting from, from what you say, it doesn't sound like he's suggesting this is normal. He's no. suggesting this is a, an extreme reaction. Yeah, no, and he's dealing with extreme cases because he's dealing with people with brain damage. But you could say that it, William Burroughs, for example, is dealing with people with high thresholds because they fried their brains with drugs and, yeah, and things are getting more and more and more extreme. And this is the absolute most furthest point of, of obscenity, which were reasons why I threw it, threw it into the fire. <laughs> well, speaking of low thresholds, Richard doesn't have much of a stomach for this sort of stuff, do you? Yes, I don't, I don't really read much of this. And I, often I have to put a book aside, often in the very early stages. Because, <laughs> you don't burn uh, them. <laughs> no, I haven't, I haven't been burning them. No. Uh, the, I mean, I remember reading Colson Whitehead's, or not reading Colson Whitehead's Zone 1, mm. uh, which opens with a scene where a guy, Mark Spitz, is clearing an office in New York from zombies after kind of the familiar Armageddon. And it gave me nightmares. Mm. And so I tried bravely another day to, to see if I could carry on and then 
was had again nightmares, nightmares. the second night and <laughs> that was it that, that was it. makes me laugh the idea of Colson Whitehead as a sort of horror merchant yes, <laughs> awesome. that's a real van- vanilla horror I can tell you Richard <laughs> the only book that's ever actually given me a nightmare is the book The Vor and there's a um, there's a scene there's a, I don't want to ruin it for people that haven't read it but there's a scene where the corpse of a baby is made alive again and just the descriptions of it sort of like robotic sort of puppet like movement on occasion I had a nightmare about it and then I interviewed Brian Catling who wrote the book and he was so thrilled that I'd had a nightmare <laughs> it's like gotcha. the ultimate compliment he was so he was like telling people and I was like stop telling people this but maybe Colson would be thrilled if you told him he'd had a nightmare maybe so I mean again what's, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to read that book was because it's an interesting interesting in terms of its genre mm. because I mean he's a very literary writer usually and he's dealing with a, a very kind of a kind of schlock trope there Mm. And I think that's one of the things that I find interesting about this is, is the difference between the, the thrillers that you're reading, um, Alison, with the gore and the murder uh, that are almost that are there, there for entertainment. They're almost like a kind of beach read. I have trouble with the idea that you'd read this kind of thing for entertainment, whereas a, a more serious book, I think, is, a, is perhaps a different matter. That's a battle of ball games, that, that, <laughs> that, that, which I think that you, you might, uh, Alison might pick you up on, is the idea that it's entertainment. Because actually, surely what a lot of good thrillers, a lot of good, good horror and thrillers are doing is it's sort of, well, like, you know, Stephen King. He's bringing out of the subconscious these monsters. Mm. Mm. And I think with thrillers as well, it's what I like about it is imagining these terrifying situations and, and kind of feeling like you're, you're not in them. Mm. I just started, I was telling Sean earlier, I just started reading Jane Harper's new novel, The Lost Man, which opens with this terrifying scene in the Australian desert where there's a gravestone there and around it there's this sort of circular mark in the sand and a body and they can't work out what the circular mark is and then they eventually realise it's because of the sun beating down he's trying to stay in the shadow of the grave and it's his legs have been dragging around to make this circle and that image is really with me and mm. I really like returning to it and thinking about how terrifying it is <laughs> I love that feeling of being horrified by something but obviously not I don't love the feeling of being horrified by the murder of a small child I'm happy the murder of a, a man <laughs> there's, there's a difference between between what what in what in terms of children's literature is often called the thrill of safe fear has been mm. defined as and something that grosses you out isn't there mm. yeah well, I think there's also so this is always this is a controversial book for two years ago, A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, and it's sort of this big literary novel. But then, as more and more people read it, they started sort of warning each other. Right, there's, there's quite a fair amount of child abuse depicted in this book and then it sort of split people into camps about people that read it and didn't like it people that read it and loved it and then people that just didn't want to try it at all because that's sort of like not they just didn't even want to emerge from the other side having witnessed those acts and we were talking about this yesterday in the office Richard because Richard didn't read it because he knew what was happening in it and I read it and I didn't know what was happening in it but then emerged actually from this book feeling a sort of cathartic sense of happiness I actually thought it was a happy book at the end of it but only because of how sad it was. The fact that it ended made me happy, which is a bizarre response to have, but I think it's also a very skillful author that could do that to someone. Banging your head against a brick wall because it feels good when it stops. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's one response to reading, I guess. <laughs> well, next week, speaking of books that are often hard to read in parts, we will be sitting down with the French novelist Leila Slimani to discuss Adele about a woman desperately trying to disguise her sex addiction from those around her. And Hadley Freeman interviews Kristen Rupenian about her first short story collection, You Know You Want This, a series of stories about men and women and the forever-shifting power dynamic between them. 
And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And join the discussion on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or by leaving a comment on the podcast page, we'd particularly like to hear your books that you struggled to finish. So from me, Sean Kane, Me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And me, Alison Flood. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.